I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome to the broadcast, folks. Great to have you. This is Theology Unplugged. I'm joined by Sam, Tim, JJ, and uh, no one else. Sounded like I was going to do a third one. Huh? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, we are continuing our series on uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit or the charismatic issues debate. And we are continuing to go back and forth and talk about prophecy. Let me give uh, Tim just a minute, see if he has anything he wants to say about uh, any announcements upcoming. Um. Uh, not specifically. You put me on the uh, on the spot there, well, but on the spot every time. This yeah, is unplugged. Yeah, this is unplugged. No, I would just say generally uh, we are uh, we are always advancing in small group curriculum, and so if you have listened to this broadcast and you you haven't uh, considered our curriculum that teaches uh, not only we really don't teach too much, I guess, the spiritual gifts as much as we just uh, try and give a general evangelical uh, steeped in church history foundational teaching that you can bring to your church uh, kind of with the idea if you're a pastor if you're listening to this you're obviously pretty uh, motivated by uh, kind of the depth of discipleship and, and learning theology and so and that's exactly what we do we we seek to develop materials that you can take back to your church as if everyone in your church can benefit from a type of bible college seminary so you can go as deep as you want to go with our curriculum and so if you haven't checked out our curriculum i'd encourage you to it's been used uh, i think in over a thousand churches and so uh, just to say that with uh, it's definitely been tested by many people and time tested and uh, and we We'd love for you to check it out. The theology program, the discipleship program, and all of our boot camps. That's all the curriculum that we have right now. That's Go to right. our website, and you can check it out on store.reclaimingthemind.org. Is a yeah. place to go. And we are listener-supported, and if you wonder, well, if I, if I donate today, what's, what, what is that going to do? Uh, amongst other things, we are developing our church history boot camp. And so imagine taking your small group or taking your church through just five 45-minute sessions and giving them an overview of the last 2,000 years of church history. Michael and I have, have taught this uh, a couple times, and it's gone really well. And so that is our newest thing that we are we are in the works developing uh, generally cost uh, about six thousand dollars to develop a class like that and so we would love if you feel led to give towards that so that we can get church history into churches all right well tim said we're not into the spiritual gifts in our classes <laughs> that we're, is we're precisely the, spiritual gifts, the right? opposite thing that i just said <laughs> <laughs> or we don't talk about it right we, we just display them hopefully yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, well, we are talking about spiritual gifts, and specific, we're talking about prophecy, continuing that. Uh, we're uh, devoting the next few weeks just to zero in on a few of the specific gifts, prophecy being one of them. Next time, we're going to talk about, Sam, you said we need to talk about next, what? what? Well, either healing or tongues. Okay. Uh, just whichever. I thought you said a specific one last time that we needed to move to. No? Okay. Uh, one of the two. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe maybe healing. Um, but right now we're, we're devoted to the the gift of prophecy. And last week we left off talking about uh, the distinguishing marks between Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets, and what are the what what is the difference? Now um, let me open up by but with this. Uh, I, I I kind of 
ended last time talking about how influential it can be whenever you say, thus saith the Lord. Now, one of the things that you guys have said is that you need to be very careful with that phrase, if you use it at all. I, I, I got the idea that you guys were saying, probably don't ever use it. Right? Correct. Don't ever use, thus saith the Lord. My hunch is if people were reading 1 Corinthians 12-14 to really carefully and seeking to have a body life that matches what Paul is recommending or prescribing for them, that you would, without even realizing it, implicitly not speak that way. If you know that you're going to speak a word that is then waiting to be weighed and judged, that it's in a sense sort of half-baked until people sign off on it and pray over it and exercise discernment, you wouldn't speak in such a way as though you tied a bow on it and handed it to somebody. You would speak with a, a certain humility and tentativeness. Well, here, here's the thing. I, I remember whenever I was, I think it was whenever I was uh, 18 years old, I was downtown. I picked up some guy, and I took him down to the shelter, and I remember him looking at me <clears throat> and saying, you're going to be a pastor one day. And, you know, I remember that to this day. I mean, it was it, I didn't know how to take it. It's not that I did take it some way or anything like that, but it, it had an impact uh, I also remember, and please forgive me because I'm not trying to draw direct association between these two things, but I think you'll understand where I'm going with this. But I also remember whenever I was at a local um, amusement park and I went to a palm reader whenever I was 12 years old. And she told me, after she read my palm, she said, whenever you're in your early 30s, don't drive a red sports car. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Now... And, just, I, and I think you've obeyed that, haven't you? Well, just the fact that I'm able to recount this to you right now <laughs> tells you that. My wife had somebody, whenever she was very young, who was a Christian palm reader or some mixture like that, okay? I don't know what it was, Synchritism. but I remember it was from the Lord and it was through her palm. And she told her that she was going to die of cancer. Okay? Mm. Now, the only reason I say all of those things is because those things carry with you. Whenever somebody says something that's a prophecy or somebody says, not thus saith the Lord, but maybe even just, I think this is what the Lord is saying to me, it becomes very dear to you in a lot of ways, whether you want it to or not. Now, some people maybe have had it said to them so many times that it doesn't affect them. But whenever you hear that, it ha it carries a different level of importance uh, no matter what. You know, I mean, it just does. You, you, you come to me and, J.J., if you would have come in my office beforehand and said, listen, this is what the, I think the Lord has told me about you today. I mean, it would be very impactful, possibly disturbing, possibly life-altering for me in some small way. My point is this that I want to carry on is that I'm scared of that. I'm really, really scared of that. I'm scared to get anything. I'm scared of palm readers because, you know, that, that does impact. You're 12 years old, and I still remember it. Palmophobia. <laughs> Palmophobia. I love it. Is. It. <laughs> it is. And he, here's, my, here's my thoughts. Number one, you know, when we're talking about God's word, we're talking about something that is very precious, very dear to him. It's, he's very jealous of it. Um, it's something that... Uh, that he is very protective of his reputation. Why can't we do this? Why can't we say, um, we're never going to say something like that or anything even close to that unless we're sure it's from the Lord? Is there a problem with that? No. What, if, what if I said, guys, listen, let's put it as a rule. You can't say, I think this is what the Lord's saying because that's scary too. 
if you're going to say something, make sure you know. Is that too big of a criteria we're putting upon the Lord to say, Lord, if you're going to reveal something to me, I don't want it to be something that maybe, maybe not, I'm kind of getting this feeling, I'm not sure, um, type thing, that you're going to be a pastor one of you grow up. I mean, isn't that a criteria that would, is that anti-biblical criteria, number one, because if it is, then throw that out, it doesn't make any difference. Or is it something that we can say, hey, this will clear everything up? Because for me, that would. For me, as long as as long as long people are... Here's what I'd say. is I get so... Whenever people say, you know, this is what I think the Lord is saying, and then you can say something like that, and it, it actually may not come to pass, or it may not be the truth, but yet you've impacted this person's life. I say that... You, you know, obviously, there's there's no acts, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 13. But I would say you have to be removed from ministry if you ever get something wrong. Wouldn't that up the ante and up the bar? Have, let me, great question. Have you, uh, you've been preaching and teaching off and on for years. Have you ever preached or taught anything wrong? With, sure. With the written revelation of God in your hand and before the people's eyes? Sure. Um, so you didn't. They didn't remove you from ministry for that. You didn't voluntarily resign because you uh, presented a fallible and maybe even incorrect interpretation of a written revelation right in front of you. Why would we? Um, why would we not remove you from ministry for that? But supposedly we're going to remove you from ministry because um, you might have uh, misinterpreted or misapplied to somebody's life uh, something that God had revealed. I'd say two reasons. Number one is that it is not something that is new. Uh, whenever I'm preaching from the Word, I'm preaching from the Word. And so therefore, whenever I am stating or bringing forth God's Word, that's a possibility that, um, that uh, I could get it wrong. That's the second one. Number one, I'm preaching from God's Word. It's nothing new. Whenever you're giving somebody a revelation, you know, don't drive in your early 30s, um, you know, like we talked about last time, your wife's cheating on you, something like that. That's something brand new. That's fresh. That's not something I'm taking from God's word and interpreting. That is something that is I'm claiming is is ex nihilo from me. Well, and you're saying or, that it's public, maybe. So one could be like private revelation, and one would be public revelation. Would you be comfortable with that? That the word of God is is public in the sense that yes, you're teaching it, but it's on display for everyone else to see to judge the accuracy of what you're teaching. Yeah, I would say that whenever you're talking about the scripture, it's already been accepted as God's word. That's why people are listening to me. That's why it's there, you know, through... Uh, maybe maybe not to let you off the hook, uh, to push the parallel a little more, I don't know that that makes it any less serious. In essence, you could you could flip the tables on that and say perhaps it makes it more serious because it's authoritative, it's, it's, it's accepted as authoritative by your listeners, and then for you to proceed to misinterpret it, either through pride or blindness or laziness or whatever might have been the particular cause in that moment when you look back and realize that you were fallible, you miscommunicated, misrepresented, Represented God, um, in essence, that might that's still extremely serious, isn't it? Because you're telling them this is what it says, and they've already accepted a priori that it is authoritative, and then you've taken it and said that it says you merit salvation by works or yes, whatever the but, case. But and I would I would say that people do need to be removed from their ministry if they are consistently wrongly interpreting God's word, or if they are consistently interpreting it in areas that are. You know, and I would say the same of anyone who claims to be a prophet today. I would, if there was a consistent uh, misleading and uh, 
sharing things that in the name of God are clearly contrary to Scripture, I would, re- I would silence them as well. Well, what I mean whenever I say consistent is this, that they are using a methodology that is a wrong methodology for you know interpreting the text. What I mean by that, let me go one step further because I know where you're taking this and that's not what I mean. What I mean is this, that whenever I am interpreting God's Word and I come to some point that, uh, let's say, it's debatable. I need to say that. I need to say that this is something that is debatable and it's something that people have disagreed upon. And so my interpretation is going to be something that is not, you know, uh, infallible. I mean, never am I infallible. So So you're saying that you can have a legitimate revelation from God and yet you can misinterpret it and misapply it. And I'm saying the same thing obtains with the prophetic gift. You can yeah, have but a the, genuine the difference revelation. is, is you already have the revelation whenever it comes to the scripture. You're claiming to have some new, fresh revelation. What difference does that make? It does make a difference because it'd be the same thing as if I came in and said, "This is new revelation from the Psalm that I'm taking." And for instance, um, and, and I think that this has to come on a personal level as well. Whenever you're interpreting God's word personally, it's not something that you just say. You know, as to people out there, you've got to be very jealous of God's word whenever you're taking it in for yourself. Whenever my sister was sick, my mother called me up one time and said, I got a word from the psalm. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the Lord gave me a word today. And I said, what is it? And she said that Angie's going to be okay. And I said, well, where did you get that from? She said, well, from this passage. And so whenever she read the passage to me, I was like, that has nothing to do with that. Now, that type of stuff that I, I would equate with that because you're not using an authorial intent type of hermeneutic. And I understand that whenever you draw those types of parallels, you know, I can springboard off the scripture and bring up anything into your life. I've just got this from the psalm that uh, you need to uh, move to Oregon. You know, well, how did you get that? Well, I'm using, you know, uh, al- allegory. And, and I see that. Well, that's, that's parallel to me. Uh, it's not parallel whenever I'm just preaching from God's Word because God's Word has already been established as a revelation. But whenever you bring up new revelation, that's what I'm talking about. Maybe this it can get a little abstract here. How about an example? And when you use the phrase new revelation, that's loaded with all sorts of you know resonance that, mm-hmm. that can take us in, in weird directions. Sam and I probably wouldn't use that phrase new revelation. But, but here's an example. Someone comes up to you to share a word. Let's assume they do it in a very First Corinthians 14 sort of way, and they gather one or two other ministers of church and just say, I want these guys to hear to help weigh and sift this. I feel like the Lord's laying in my heart, Michael, that um, I'm pulling this out of the air. You know, that uh, that uh, your daughter is sick, and um, and uh, I've never met you, but I get that sense. Do you have a daughter? <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, okay. And I feel like the, that she has this kind of sickness, and the, and the Lord wants you to know that he's very present with you, and he knows the fears that you have, and he wants you to be reassured that he loves you very much. And that he is present, comforting your daughter right now, even as as we talk with one another. Um, you know, so he, not he's not communicating. He's not communicating something extra extra biblical that needs to be added to the canon. You already could extrapolate biblical truths that say that the Lord's with you in suffering. He's sovereign over suffering. Um, he has compassion over his children. He knows that the hair is on your daughter's head. And yet, for him to demonstrate in, in a very what I guess you could say a miraculous way, something you already know, reaffirming a truth you already know to you. That would, I'm guessing, be very encouraging. It would be, but here would be the difference. What if somebody came up to me and said the same type of thing but said, your daughter's going to get well? I think the Lord is saying your daughter's going to get well. I and, mean, that, that, and that's, that's, where, that's, and that's where, where wisdom needs to why, come to bear. Because right. that's a why wouldn't you just respond to any word, whether it's the kind that J.J. described or the kind that you just described, in the same way that the Thessalonians were told by Paul to respond? Don't despise prophetic utterances. 
but don't gullibly embrace them either. In other words, it's it's not like the alternative to despising and rejecting is swallowing hook, line, and sinker. Everybody says as the infallible word of God. No, test them, judge them, pray through them. If scripture and common sense and the community of faith and uh, the nature of what the prophetic is supposed to be and to accomplish does not uh, bear a witness to that alleged word that it is of God, do what Paul said to do, reject it. If, if there is a word of encouragement in there that you sense is from God, embrace it. I would, and remember, Paul is writing infallible canonical scripture saying that. It's in the context of an apostolic canonical word that Paul is saying don't despise non-canonical, non-apostolic words. I, I just don't see why it is a bigger problem for us today than it was for the Thessalonians in the first century. Well, I know I'm not saying it is, but see, here's where I'm coming at it is I'm saying, I'm, I don't want to despise them, but I don't know where despising comes in and I don't know what that looks like. I want to test them, but my bar is very, very high. Let, let me, if, if I can just kind of interrupt at this point, and I don't mean to derail the conversation, but in the previous two sessions, I, I kind of dominated and JJ as well in terms of our perspective on the prophetic. So I would like to hear from you two, Michael and Tim. What do you understand the New Testament gift of prophecy to be? Because we've been kind of, we've given our view, we've articulated, and you've expressed your concerns about it and how it would operate and how you would judge words. What do you understand the New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy to be? I I have a feeling we've got some cessationists out there, soft Mm -hmm. to hard, who are saying, hey, let Michael and Tim give Mm -hmm. our point of view. So I'm asking, I want to hear, what do you guys believe the gift to be? Yeah, well, I think for me, and this, this is, I know this is going to be its own broadcast later on. Uh, you know, for me, the biggest struggle is, is this descriptive or prescriptive? And that, uh, that for me is the biggest, uh, you know, my heart is, I, well, I, I love church history. And so, so for me, and I know this is going to be a future broadcast, but many of our discussions, I, I still think that there is a ton of training. I think what's interesting with our, and I've t- mentioned this to Michael a few times, is it would be a lot more black and white if we were talking to a uh, first wave uh, charismatic or or you know if we were speaking of uh, speaking to a pentecostal it would be i think a lot clearer for us or if you were speaking to a hard cessationist it'd be a lot clearer but we're so close in some ways of saying yeah i don't agree with you know i, I don't agree that many of the verses that a cessationist uses uh traditionally i i i, I don't see those as being rock solid indisputable evidence and i think a lot of people are that way i think that's why uh, like you can have the acts 29 network where you have people in the same network on both sides because i think they're saying no longer do i think that uh, a charismatic in this way thinks that i'm immature in my faith or that as john wesley said that i need that second work of the spirit in order to attain a certain level of holiness and maturity in the christian life so uh you know for, for me at least the linchpin stands more i think that there is a ton that needs to happen in the discipleship of people uh, to get them to where and you know i almost am not comfortable using that term prophecy um, especially as you guys describe it because i think people will think 
Pentecostal prophecy yep. and not continuationist prophecy. So I'd, I'd rather just say, uh, you know, I got the sense from the Lord, and, and then from there, and not to say I have a gift of prophecy, and whenever I have something that pops in my mind, I'll say it, uh, and it will be from God. Um, but you know, my, my biggest hang-up for all of this personally is um, so many people through the history of the church saying, we don't see the Spirit doing this anymore. We believe this has ceased. And so when I see it, I see, yes, I think that this is what Paul was communicating to us in the in the in First Corinthians. But um, I also believe that this, you know, Jesus said, okay, the Spirit is going to come. It's better for me to leave. The Spirit is going to come and guide you into all truth. And for 1,500 years, and this is, I think, going to be a big discussion with us, but for 1,500 years, I would say roughly the Spirit did not lead his church to do these things. And so if the Spirit was not leading his church until more recently to do these things, then, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, the book of Acts, I'm looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm looking at Thessalonians differently because I'm saying, yes, um, if it is possible that the Spirit renewed this now, we need to be have it heavily guarded, but we need to be extremely, um, I think, uh, careful to say, um, is the Spirit really doing this when the men that we, the shoulders that we stand on, they all said this isn't happening anymore. I, I understand that, and I'm looking forward to that discussion. But I guess my question is, if I can press the point again. When Paul said in Romans twelve six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Mm-hmm. And when Paul said, and when we disagree on our understanding of 1 Corinthians 14, 1, but that's not the point. But when Paul said, earnestly desire that you may prophesy. When the Romans and the Corinthians, we'll just take two examples, Mm -hmm. obeyed Paul's commands, what happened? What was the prophetic gift in the first century as it is described in the New Testament? That's what I'm kind of wanting to hear from you guys. What do you understand it to be? It's going to connect with what I talked about last week and this week. It's God's word. I mean, it's his authority. It's God's mouthpiece. Whenever I hear, you know, that there's a prophet, there's no reason for me in any other sense to ever think of it as anything but God speaking through someone. Therefore, whenever I look at this, I say it is God speaking through someone. And as I said just a bit ago, I don't believe that prophecy necessarily takes the course of a canonical revelation every time. I you know, it, it could and and it, it may. As a matter of fact, I mean, I, I'm very controversial whenever it comes to this issue. It's just the way that I define it. I think in the end we see the same things the same way. But I believe in a theoretically open canon. I believe that the canon has not been added to since Now, the folks, last that's process. the cessationist talking, not the <laughs> continuationist. I want to be clear here in case you can't differentiate well, the voices. Theoretically open simply meaning this, that it closed as a matter of fact. It didn't close because internally it had to close. You're I mean, saying if Paul's letter to the Laodiceans was discovered, we'd add it. No, no, that's not what, what I'm saying. saying. I would say we <laughs> do not add that. He's saying say, it's closed because God sovereignly and providentially closed it. Exactly, it just yeah. stopped. I mean, yeah. if uh, for some reason God started adding books to the Bible, I wouldn't say foul. You know, you can't because theologically I say you can't. You know, or the church in uh, 398 said you can't. I just say it just happened. In it wasn't that the church closed it; it's that they recognized something that had already transpired. 
or take exactly. Place. Yeah. It just stopped. Internal validity. It, of, it, it of just that. stopped. That's yeah. all there is to it. I mean, which, which is which is basically what I'm saying about the gifts of the of prophecy. No, no, I don't well. want to take off with that because I know where you're going with that. Okay, good good stuff. <laughs> but what I'm saying here is that when we're talking about prophecy, I'm not talking about here's you know always being put within the scripture. I'm saying that God speaks through His people, and He can at His will at any point at any time. Um, when we talk about prophecy, what is prophecy? It is God's word through man. Okay, no, can I just stop and ask for clarification? Because sure. I think you finally answered the question I was hoping you would. Are you saying that it took me a long time for something? Uh, you, you kinda, yeah. <laughs> He's a slow learner. Uh, you I, was said, exer- I was exercising the my The New Testament teaching. gift of prophecy, you say, is God's word coming through a human to the people. So do I? But you say it's not necessarily canonical. Mm. Okay. So is that word equal in authority to Isaiah or to, or, or to the Gospel of Matthew or to 1 Timothy? Um, do you, are, you, are you suggesting that the word is without mixture, without error, that every time a New Testament prophet, whether in Galatia, Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica, Antioch, Ephesus, wherever, spoke, whether male or female, young or old, that they each and every time, if they in fact were exercising the New Testament gift, speaking forth the infallible, inerrant, absolutely authoritative word of God. Not canonical, but well, yeah, I mean, in the end, how can God's word be less authoritative than God's word? If it's God's word, it doesn't matter whether it's a personal message to me or something about the history of redemption. How do they weigh it then? How does who weigh it? It sounds like you're putting them at, at, at equal footing, so then how do you weigh spoken word by the written word? Well, I think there's an implicit weighing every time Paul writes. I mean, whenever he writes Corinthians, he is always referring back to previously revealed God's word and establishing himself in that. Whenever he writes Romans, he's continually going back and, and saying this has been revealed through the prophets. And so I think there's an implicit weighing that goes on within Paul himself where he weighs his own words and tells everybody, weigh this, what I'm saying, against the prophets. He doesn't assume automatically that people are going to accept it. And so I think that's where you got Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 13 that come in, previously revealed whatever revelation must be, um, a new revelation must coincide with that. Now, of course, what if I came up to you and said, you know, God told me you should buy the house, that's no way to, to um, weigh that against necessarily against anything previously re- revealed. That doesn't make it any more or less valid. Um, but, but if it is doctrinal, if it is something like that, then it has to be weighed against previously revealed. So, so good. I, I'm glad that. So, I think we understand now what you would mean by the New Testament gift of prophecy. So, I would just simply say that the thing that all of us have to do is then read the New Testament documents as carefully as we can. Um, Acts two, Acts thirteen, Acts nineteen, Acts twenty one, First um, Corinthians twelve through fourteen, First Thessalonians five, and see if in fact the way in which prophecy is described operating in the actual narrative flow of church life in the first century is compatible with that explanation that you gave. I personally don't think it is. That's why I'm a, I am don't have a, a problem with the idea of prophecy continuing to exist today, and I don't believe it's a threat to the finality of the canon, because when I actually look 
at Paul's language and Luke's language, it seems to me that they are describing something other than what you define prophecy to be. Uh, now, remember, that, I don't think it's a threat to the finality of the canon either. Okay. I mean, well, I, and see, I think, and I but think, most cessationists would. You're, yeah, you're yeah. an exception in that regard. Yeah, I really don't. He's I a neo-cessationist. I thought Robert Gaffin said that in his book. I thought that, that was a pretty weak argument to bring simply because um, you know, God has obviously in the Old Testament had other, other revelation that is not found in the Scripture. I mean, at the very least, Jesus said a lot of stuff, and he wrote something that we don't know what it said, if you accept the validity, the historic, historic validity of uh, John chapter 8. He did write in sand, and we don't know what it said. So, so for the sake of our readers and helping us process, we have, we have a, a view of prophecy that you just articulated, on the one hand. And the Which view, is simply that it's God's word. Yeah. And, and, it's and the view that I have that it's a, it's a mixture of God's word and the human errant communication and articulation of it in the context of the congregational life of God's people, and that and so we have these two uh, contrasting views. And the question is, as we read the New Testament text, which seems better to comport with what Paul and Luke? And Peter and others said that really is what the issue comes it is, down to. But the thing is, is I, I don't see anything different in the Old Testament. I mean, whenever um, uh, Saul, you know, all of a sudden was among the prophets, what was he prophesying? I mean, I don't know. I mean, whenever Nathan went to David, we get a glimpse into that because it is part of the Davidic history, which was very important. But I'm sure he went to David with other things that were very personal and very, very much uh, to the point and cutting to the quick, maybe that we don't have recorded. And so I don't really see the necessity of seeing a strict difference other than the difference in the giving of the Spirit and the plenty of the Spirit that is given in the in the New Testament. I guess I would push back there. There seems to be a stronger discontinuity than that to me when you look at Pentecost and he gets up and he interprets what people are seeing, the Spirit being poured out on these people, speaking in languages that they don't have the ability inherently to speak in. And he says, this is Joel 2.28, and the emphasis in that passage is, all, all the sons and daughters. This is a new kind of manifestation of the Spirit. And it makes me think of Numbers 11 when, you know, Moses' father-in-law says, you need some help here. You're judging all these people. You're never getting any sleep. He gets these 70 guys. Two of them don't show up. And they start prophesying spontaneously in the camp. You know, Joshua comes to him and says, should I stop them? And Moses says, I think very presciently as a weary leader in this Old Testament dispensation of the Spirit where he's carrying the burden of hearing from God and communicating to the people, he says, would to God that you all spoke and prophesied. You know, Mm -hmm. man, it would be really nice for me if there was a democratization of the Spirit. It would take a lot of stress off of me. And and, and I think, in a sense, he was looking forward because Joel 2.28 describes that. And then Peter gets up and authoritatively, canonically, says what was being described is this. Yeah, but but what is the point of reference for the people in Acts chapter 2 to go back to? It's Joel. What's the point of reference in Joel? It's prophecy. What's that point of reference? It's the prophecy of the Old Testament. So he's saying... No, Joel says this hasn't happened yet, but someday it will. Yeah, everybody will prophesy, but what he does is just say prophesy. He doesn't bring in some new concept. It's an old concept, which was... And, And to determine whether or not it's new or in any way different, you have to actually look at how prophecy functions in the New Testament and how how we are to respond to it. But my point would be just what he said. In Acts, he refers back to Joel, and so there's no reason for us to take it any other way. It seems to be that that's what Peter took it as. Except except there's a discontinuity implied there where Joel is literally saying it doesn't function this way now, 
it will function in a different way yeah, someday. Yeah, in the liberality, and I agree. Well, but see, there you go. There's an assumption there that only in liberality. But then I think Paul gives us some very clear reasons to think that it's going to function in other ways besides liberality when he gives very clear prescriptives for its function that are no way operative in the Old Testament, that it needs to be weighed, that it, that it needs to be contrasted with the authoritative established word of the apostles, all these things that were never prescribed for Israelites to receive words from Jeremiah in the Old Testament. So there's discontinuity, I would argue, in multiple ways. Well, I'd say that being weighed has to do with the Deuteronomy what, chapter 13. Let me throw out another example real quickly here. We're, we're running short on time. What, Man, a, what, what about the Old Testament concept of the priesthood? We all agree in the Old Testament, priests could only come from one tribe. Women couldn't be priests. Very few ever functioned and operated in that office. We come to the New Testament, we have, same word, massive discontinuity. Everybody's a priest, male and female. Uh, you don't have to uh, have any kind of hereditary link to a particular tribe of people. So you have the same word being used. Now, granted, there are, are going to be differences, but my point is simply this. We have biblical precedent for the same terminology coming from old into the new and, and some significant discontinuity in what is being described. But the New I Testament say the priesthood is, is radically different from what the Old Testament priesthood but was. But isn't the basic concept of what being a priest is the same, though? A priest is a representation of the people to God. And I'd say the basic concept in prophecy is the same. Yeah, speaking God's word. Yeah, but so, in the old, so my, but the, but the element back. of discontinuity is that it's not merely God's word; it's God's word spoken by fallible humans. See, here's the difference. Let me say this: here's the difference, Michael. I think in the Old Testament there is an explicit guarantee that the, there is a, a, a an absolute, infallible, unbreakable link between the revelatory act and the communication of the prophetic person. I don't believe that exists in the New Testament. I don't believe there's a guarantee of trans of infallible transmission from the revelatory act to the verbal communication. That I think is is where we're differing mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and I would say two reasons is because I don't see that transition break that you guys see, and I also don't see God lightening up and saying, you know, I don't care quite as much about my words. Oh, he I does did care. Before. He says. In view of the fact that there, I think what he's saying is in view of the fact that there's not this infallible guarantee that the revelatory act is going to be transmitted and communicated uh, inerrantly, therefore judge, test, weigh, evaluate these things and determine what in fact that individual prophet has communicated of my word, guard it and protect it with your life, and what he hasn't, reject it. And we're getting right to the nub of things here, mm-hmm. which is more important in essence is what we're debating. Is the continuity or the discontinuity more important? And to steal an illustration from Greg Kokel, you know, strychnine and aspirin may both come in pill form, which is more important, the similarities or the differences. So, you know, in a sense, we're saying, oh, there are similarities to be sure, but the discontinuity in essence is far more important. Well, I think we'll, we'll be in agreement. I mean, I, I don't know if we're going to come to some type of a real solid thing. It's really, really been helpful for me, though. I think we're in a, we can be in agreement that God's word is extremely important to him. His reputation is yes. something he's extremely jealous about. Yes. Amen. And that uh, in the end, whenever I, te- whenever I come to these things, it's, it's very difficult for me because the bar in my mind is going to be set so high, and it's going to be hard for me to say, Michael, you're setting the bar too high, you know, but, lighten yeah. up on this stuff. But what, what I would do is really compliment Bridgeway and really compliment the leadership of Bridgeway because 
because I would say if I believed that this gift was fully being utilized by the Spirit of God, I would think that it is utilized best or it, that Bridgeway has set a great model uh, in contrary to many other churches who I would say have terrible models of this in place of training their people in how to utilize this gift in an well, honoring way. doesn't mean way. we don't screw up because yeah. we do, but God is forgiving. So and we're and it's, not to our, it's not to our credit. Paul's, Paul's given us a lot of help as to how to do it. <laughs> no, yeah, but, but what I would say is that it would be easily easy to bring many pastors in here, I think, and heavily criticize that they are not doing it in a way that is honoring to the way that it was written, uh, and I believe that you guys are being honoring to the way that Paul lays that out. And I would also say, Michael, I, again, I want to reaffirm this. I think the broader char- so-called charismatic world needs to hear your passion for the sanctity and uh, of God's word and, and not treating the prophetic in such a flippant casual way uh, it, it is something that is very holy and it's and it's uh, that's why we have guidelines in the New Testament it's why Paul came down so hard on the Corinthians and said look folks you're really abusing this uh, you're you're not helping one another you're not edifying one another here's how I want you to operate within the here are the guidelines for operating in, in this spiritual gift. Well, folks, uh, we may be continuing this. I mean, Sam and I are obviously going to go back and forth about this a little bit more on the blog and maybe um, uh, cover things in a little bit more structured way and go back and forth. And one of the things that I anticipate talking to Sam about is what those guidelines are. I think we're okay, though, to move on from this subject to the next one on healing next week. Would that be good with you guys? Sounds so, great. Yep. Um, as well, Sam, you said that in your book, um, is it, is it, repeat the name of it. The again? Beginner's Guide to Spiritual the Gifts. The Beginner's Guide to Get Spiritual Gifts has the list of tests that you lay out. And those are the, those are the ones I assume you follow by at Bridgeway. Yes. Okay. I, I'd encourage you guys to get that very, very important or, subject. Or they can go to bridgewaychurch.com. And un, I, I don't even know exactly where it is on the website, JJ. Maybe we should identify. But we have... The guidelines for the exercise of prophetic gifting in print form on the website, and they can download it. Uh, maybe at our next broadcast, I can, or you can just go searching on our website. And, well, don't, and don't forget the newest edited version of Wayne Grudem's Gift of Prophecy. The appendices uh, address these issues very succinctly, and I think very well. The Gift of Prophecy, Wayne Grudem. That's right. Okay, good, uh, folks. I hope you're enjoying the series. I know it's a it's a series that is uh, very enjoyable for all of us, even though you know we may come to disagreements on these things. I pray that you're enjoying it. Not only that you're enjoying it. This is not just about enjoying that you're being edified through it and and that the Spirit is working with us and convicting us because we're not uh, in pursuit of those things that we already believe and think are true, but we want God to change us and in accordance with reality and in accordance with His revelation. So well, that continues to be our prayer. Please please let us know, um, you know, if you would, the best way to get in touch with us is just to go to the iTunes page and write some remarks. I've seen a lot of remarks recently there. Uh, let us know what you think of the series. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love to get that encouragement. Uh, if you have the gift of encouragement, write it twice. <laughs> Until next week. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage 
at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.